Brilliant. Hello, and welcome to Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study. Today is December 10th, 2023. We welcome Dan McClellan with us today, talking about the revelation to John. I'm Chris Kimball. I'm conducting today on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board, Michael Austin and Linda Hoffman Kimball, and Rebecca Deschweinitz, also board members, are with us to handle the technical details, offer prayer, and participate in the discussion. Um, we are using our webinar format on Zoom and running a live stream on Facebook. We record these programs. We'll make this available through our website, and it's also searchable on YouTube, usually within a day or two. Word about schedule, uh, more than usual, so pay attention. Today will be the last live gospel study session for 2023. As noted, we're going to be talking about the revelation to John. If you're following the Come Follow Me program at the church, you will find that three Sundays in December include readings from Revelation. We're going to broadcast a pre-recorded Christmas message from the Dialogue Board on December 24th at this time, Sunday, December 24th at this time, this channel. Um, I, it will be wonderful, but I haven't recorded my part of it yet, so I uh, can't tell you any, anything about, what, about the content. For next year, the next, uh, we, we will continue. Dialogue Gospel Study will continue next year working with the Book of Mormon. The first session will be on Sunday, January 14th, the second Sunday of January at 10 a.m., 10 a.m. for 2024. We'll continue through 2024 on the second and fourth Sundays at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. A word about Dialogue. Dialogue is the oldest independent Mormon studies journal founded in 1966. In the first issue of the journal, Father Eugene England wrote, my faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. Dialogue is fundamentally a quarterly journal and I encourage you to subscribe. Subscriptions and subscribers are the lifeblood of the journal. In addition, all 57 years of the journal, including the most recent issue, are available and searchable online, free online. Also, the digital offerings we produce, including this gospel study series, are free for online users, and we encourage uh, participation, listening, sharing. If you value this dialogue gospel study series or the journal itself, or even just the existence of an independent Mormon studies journal, please support dialogue. One of the best ways, in my opinion, is a paid subscription or a contribution in the amount of a paid subscription, whether you receive the print journal or not. Uh, however, for the long run, Dialogue does rely on contributions, and we are building a Dialogue fund, a sustaining Dialogue fund, in order to carry the journal and associated offerings into the future. Now, for introductions. As I introduce people today, I'd like to remind you that we invite people to the Dialogue Gospel Study Program for their own voice. Nobody here today is speaking on behalf of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, their present employer, or any other organization unless they declare it, which is uncommon but happens. Our teacher today is Dan McClellan. I'm going to say more about him. Um, Linda Kimball, a fellow Dialogue board member, will offer the closing prayer. And Jacqueline Sopo will offer the, the opening prayer. Jacqueline is a friend, a fellow traveler, and a fan of Dialogue Gospel Study. 
Jacqueline, Linda, and I were part of a tour group in Israel that Dan McClellan led earlier this year in a quieter time in Israel. Jacqueline is a mother of five children and a nonprofit fundraiser currently working at the Springville Museum of Art. Um, for many of us these days, Dan McClellan needs no introduction. Um, we've broadcast introductions. I'm going to use uh, a note about Dan from um, that uh, from the, uh, let me see, what's the organization? Dan was recently awarded the 2023 Richards Award for Public Scholarship um, and by the Society of Biblical Literature. There's the word. Um, as they say in acknowledging this award, Daniel McClellan is an independent scholar of the Bible and religion, an honorary fellow at the University of Birmingham's Cadbury Center for the Public Understanding of Religion. He received his PhD in 2020 from the University of Exeter and a revised version of his dissertation entitled Adonized Divine Images, a Cognitive Approach, was published in 2022 in SBL Press's Open Access Ancient Near East Monograph Series. In an effort to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and combat the spread of misinformation about the same, Daniel teaches regular online classes, co-hosts the popular Data Over Dogma podcast with his friend Dan Beecher, and goes by at McClellan on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter, where he confronts misinformation, shares the state of the field, and responds to questions about the Bible and religion. Um, Dan is a return missionary from Uruguay. He and his wife have three daughters and we welcome him today. We're going to begin today uh, with music, um, A Poor Wayfaring Man of Grief, uh, this version performed by the BYU Men's Chorus featuring Robert Brandt, and then the opening prayer will be offered by Jacqueline Sokol. God, we um, gather this morning with gratitude in our heart that we can have this opportunity to learn together this morning. We're, we're grateful for Dan and his willingness to share his time and his talents with us. We're grateful to the all those that work and serve at, at Dialogue and for the resources they share with the community. We pray that we will, um, that our hearts and our minds will be inspired and um to, to love more and to have more compassion for others. We pray for those who are struggling and mourning that we can mourn with them and um, be in tune with how we can serve and love better. And we say these things in the name of thy son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Dan, um, you are a gift to us. Thank you for being here and you're on. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Chris and, and everybody else uh, associated with Dialogue. Uh, it's good to see uh, many of you again. It's been several months. Uh, sorry to hear some of you are not feeling so well. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, to share some thoughts with you all today. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to share uh, some things about the Book of Revelation. This is kind of in keeping with uh, my usual content is going to be sharing a lot of data, 
uh, and allowing y'all to um, decide how you want to uh, engage in any application. So uh, I'm going to share my screen in a moment, but I just want to um, start by saying I'm going to begin with the earliest witnesses to the book of Revelation and then discuss the uh, apocalyptic genre a little bit. And then with that understanding as an interpretive lens, uh, we'll then look at what the author is most likely trying to accomplish with the text, starting from kind of the 30,000 foot view and then zooming in on the main divisions of the text. Uh, then I'll move briefly on to how the text was received within early Christianity, how it was included in the canon, and how it has been interpreted since then, if we have enough time for all that. Um, so I am going to share my screen here. So hopefully everybody should be seeing um, an image of a manuscript. Uh, the oldest fragment of any kind we have of the book of Revelation comes from the middle of the second century CE, so less than a century, and perhaps as few as uh, a few decades after its initial composition. It's written on the back of a roll of papyrus that had another text written on in around 100 CE. And this manuscript contains portions of Revelation 1, verses 13 through Revelation 2, verse 1. Uh, and it has many differences from the text as it is generally reconstructed in critical editions of the New Testament today. The next manuscript we have is Papyrus 47, or P47, from the Chester Beatty Collection. Uh, this is 10 papyrus pages with writing on the front and back, and it's dated by scholars from the mid to the late 2nd century CE, and it contains most of Revelation 9, verse 10, through Revelation 17, verse 2. And this page here includes uh, Revelation 13. And these three letters here with the line over the top of them represent the number 666. And we'll see that reference again uh, in a little bit. The next is Papyrus 18, which is likely late 3rd to early 4th century CE. Uh, it's pretty fragmentary. It's just 17 lines of text that preserve portions of Revelation 1, verses 4 through 7. And there are even a few small differences in this very fragmentary text. And we have P115, which is actually made up of 26 different fragments that preserve scattered portions of passages from Revelation chapters 1 through 15. And that brings us to P24. This is the front and back of a fragment of a manuscript that's from roughly in the same time period as P115 and has portions of Revelation 5, verses 5 through 8, and 6, verses 5 through 8. Uh, and the differences here from the critical text on which modern translations are based are pretty minimal. So up to this point, we've got a handful of manuscripts representing less than half of the entire book of Revelation. And every manuscript so far differs in small ways from how scholars have reconstructed what we believe to be the earliest form of the text. And the earliest manuscript we have that attests to the entirety of the book of Revelation is likely Codex Sinaiticus, which dates to the middle of the 4th century CE. Uh, we have every verse represented, and at this point, we can finally produce a full copy of the book of Revelation, um, which means we can't cobble together a full copy of Revelation until almost 300 years after it was originally written, at least from manuscripts. We have quotations from some church fathers uh, from earlier centuries. Uh, and you'll note that even Sinaiticus has differences from our critical text. The, the letters in red, there are differences. And it's actually considered a rather poor representative of the book of Revelation. And within around a century of Codex Sinaiticus, we have two more manuscripts that contain the entire book. These are Codex Alexandrinus 
Latin Codex Ephraimi Rescriptus, which is a palimpsest, meaning someone scraped the ink off an existing manuscript and reused it to write another text. And here is a chart I made that shows the manuscripts of Revelation, the passages they preserve, and the rough dates of their uh, creation according to pretty conservative estimates. And the point I'm trying to make here is not that we can't trust our editions of the book of Revelation, it's just to give you a peek under the hood to see how the biblical manuscripts looked, how they came together, how much of our text is based on judgment calls made by scholars who are trying to reconstruct what they think the earliest text looked like. Uh, there are certainly small things about our editions of the book of Revelation that are not accurate to the original composition, but they're also probably not incredibly important. But because there is a bit of a black hole between the composition of the text and our earliest manuscript witnesses to it, we can't know for sure what may have been changed. Most scholars date the composition of the book of Revelation to the early 90s CE, though we can't really be more precise about that. The text seems to be catalyzed by an acute period of Roman persecution, which has generally been identified with the reign of Domitian. But today, historians find the evidence for widespread or targeted persecution quite thin. Uh, it likely flared up here and there, but likely as isolated reactions to specific events rather than something programmatic or widespread. This makes it hard to say it was definitely during the reign of Domitian, but the external and internal data don't favor any data that departs by more than a decade or so from the traditional date in the early 90s CE. The uh, author identifies himself as John. But there's no indication we should associate this John with any other John known from early Christianity. Uh, John says he's on Patmos because of his testimony of Jesus, which is overwhelmingly interpreted to mean he's been banished because of that testimony. And scholars usually refer to John of Patmos or John the Revelator. And while it's become conventional and even dogmatic among some groups, including our own, to identify John of Patmos with the author of the Gospel of John, the Greek of the two books is so wildly divergent in style and in quality that there is very, very little likelihood of that. Justin Martyr in the middle of the second century CE is the first Christian to identify the author of Revelation with the author of the Gospel of John. There is nothing internal to either text that points in that direction. This is just somebody saying, hey, what if they're the same John? And that would become quite popular, but was not without skepticism in early Christianity. As we'll see later, there were some folks who rejected that uh, identification. Now, we'll get into the story of the book of Revelation for a second, but I want to take a bit to talk about its literary genre. Um, understanding, and I'm just going to stop sharing just for a moment, because um, some of you are probably getting tired of looking at that. Understanding genre is incredibly is an incredibly important element of interpreting a text because authors use conventions associated with specific genres to accomplish the rhetorical goals they have for a text. And the better under, we understand a text genre, the better we can make sense of what the author is trying to do uh, with the text. And go back into the slideshow and say, let's say you found this on the ground in a parking lot, most of you would immediately recognize what kind of text this is. This is a shopping list or a grocery list. Um, if some of the items were crossed off and some were not, you might even be able to deduce what was purchased, what they couldn't find, what they decided to skip. There's a lot of information that we can import into our interpretation of the text just based on knowing the conventions and how they function. 
Now, if we have a list of slightly different items, but it says one pound and two teaspoons and three quarters of a cup and a pinch in front of them, we would have an entirely different genre. Most of us would know exactly what that genre is as well. It's a recipe. There's a bunch of information you could import about the purpose and the function of that text based only on your knowledge of the genre. Things that are not uh, in the text at all, not stated in the text, but that you would confidently be able to import. You know how to use the text because you know what kind of text it is. Similarly, when a text begins once upon a time, the conventionalized form of that text is communicating something to the consumer about what assumptions they should be importing and what function the text is supposed to have. So understanding the genre of an ancient text, including a biblical text, is an important part of interpreting it. And Revelation is an apocalyptic text, and more precisely, it's coming from the Jewish apocalyptic genre. And this had been around for a few centuries by the time of the composition of Revelation, but we make a mistake if we think the author sat down and said to themselves, I'm going to write an apocalypse. So I've got all these rules that I've got to follow. It was more likely that the author decided to use this imagery and that turn of phrase, and this made the text very much like other texts that used similar imagery and phrasing and motifs. So it's not a, a binary black and white thing so much as it is, um, as my 14-year-old daughter would like to say, a vibe. You're just vibing, and there are things that you can do to signal this vibe to the consumer of the text. It's approximating the feel of other texts. Now, despite the fuzziness of the category, we can identify some prototypical features of apocalypses that frequently occur within these texts. For instance, apocalypses focus on some kind of revelation given within a narrative framework to a human figure, usually by some kind of divine intermediary who is also frequently interpreting the message of the journey or of the often bizarre or abstract imagery of the revelation. This imagery usually narrates in some way the past, the present, and or the future to the human figure in a way that informs the experiences of the human figure's community. Often the end times or the eschaton is the climax of the revelation. And in many, but not all apocalypses, the revelation is coming at a time of crisis, which is the case with revelation. And when this is the case, apocalyptic literature is frequently functioning to comfort an oppressed or suffering community by letting them know that God is in control and that there is a grand confrontation coming that will result in the defeat and the destruction of the oppressor. And in this sense, apocalypses attempt to comfort the oppressed and also exhort them to remain faithful in the face of persecution or oppression. Crisis can cause people to abandon the cause and their community and their identity. So there's also boundary maintenance going on. Those who fall away are often characterized very harshly as a way to try to incentivize fidelity and make people feel, I need to stay a part of this group. And the imagery in apocalyptic literature is often bizarre, ambiguous, or grotesque, uh, but most often builds on imagery from other authoritative texts within the community. And the point is usually to try to evoke an emotional response that resonates with the group's shared identity and past, rather than communicate a very specific and detailed message. The flexibility of the imagery and its interpretation is precisely why some apocalyptic texts have remained relevant for so long. They're just vague enough to be reinterpreted to fit all kinds of different circumstances. So they continue to inform and give a meaning 
people's experiences generations after the circumstances that catalyzed their original composition. And this is why even today, folks find meaning and significance in Revelation, as well as in Daniel, and even texts like First Enoch. None of these was meant as prophecy about the 21st century CE, but their interpretive flexibility has allowed them to remain relevant as people create meaning with and from the biblical and other relevant texts. So this is an outline of the book of Revelation. Uh, apart from the introduction and the conclusion, we begin with the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, which refers to Anatolia or modern-day Turkey. And these letters both praise and offer criticism to these churches to draw a line in the sand regarding who the author believed to be worthy Christians. And this is the part of the text that is urging Christians to more fidelity. And we'll talk a bit about the concerns the author is expressing a bit later. After being given the instructions about the letters, John looks and sees an open door. He's told to come up here to be shown the things that must take place. And then John is immediately in the spirit, seeing God on their throne, describing this vision in terms reminiscent of Ezekiel's vision during the Babylonian exile. We then have three series of seven items that introduce events and imagery, starting with seven seals and then seven trumpets. This is interrupted by seven chapters discussing the dragon, the beasts, and the faithful. Then we move on to the seven bowls and the ultimate fall of Babylon, which leads into the demise of the beast and the introduction of the new Jerusalem. And it's important to note that the story does not progress perfectly chronologically, particularly as we look at the seven seals, trumpets, and bowls. Once the seventh seal is open, there's silence for 30 minutes before John sees the seven angels with the seven trumpets. And so like a rushing, Russian nesting doll, the seven trumpets come from the opening of the seventh seal. It seems these presentations of seven are cyclical to some degree too, repeating some themes for emphasis. And the beast is ultimately destroyed, which makes way for the new Jerusalem and the ushering in of peace and purity, leading to the conclusion of the book, which affirms its authority and pronounces curses upon anyone who would change anything about it. Yeah. Let's take a look at the main divisions of these texts, starting with the text introduction and salutation. And I'm not going to dwell for a long time on the text here, but just briefly describe what's happening. Here, John describes the letter as a revelation of Jesus Christ regarding what must soon come to pass, given by God via an angel to John. It is addressed to the seven churches in the west of Asia Minor, and the salutation closes with God Almighty self-identifying as the Alpha and the Omega. Here are the rough locations of the seven churches and the island of Patmos on the west side of modern Turkey. Uh, these aren't remotely all the churches of early Christianity, but the number seven was representative of perfection at this time period. So addressing seven churches would be a nice round number and would get a point get the point across that this message is divine. Immediately after the salutation, John briefly identifies himself with those Christians who share in persecution and its patient endurance. John was in the spirit on the Lord's day, which seems to refer to a spiritual trance of some kind on a Sunday. He hears a voice instructing him to write to the seven churches. And when he turns to see who said this, he sees a figure that he describes in terms reminiscent of Daniel and Ezekiel. He doesn't see a man or the son of man. He sees someone like the son of man. And this matches the hesitancy of both other, other texts to describe deity in concrete terms. They prefer to hedge their description, to simultaneously reveal and obscure the precise nature of the divine. And the description of the one like the Son of Man is actually combining the two different figures from Daniel 7.13. 
Verse 9 describes the Ancient of Days as having clothes as white as snow, a hair like pure wool, and a fiery throne with burning wheels. This idea that God's throne has wheels comes from Ezekiel's mobilization of the divine throne following the exile. Putting wheels on the throne allowed God's presence to depart the temple and travel to where the Judahites were being held in exile. In verse 13, we have one who looks like a son of man, which is an Aramaic term that basically means a human. Daniel sees someone who looks like a human. That one who looks human comes with the clouds of heaven and is presented to the Ancient of Days. So someone who looked human was presented before the Ancient of Days, who looked very much not human. Why does Revelation 1 combine the two and treat the Son of Man as a formal title for someone who is clearly identified as the Ancient of Days? Well, it goes back to the ancient, well, and the ancient Greek translation of Daniel 7.13. We refer to it as the Old Greek. That, remember, that renders the preposition to in the phrase came to the ancient of days as came as the ancient of days. The difference here is heos and hos. So it's a very tiny difference in Greek, but it entirely changes the meaning of the passage. And according to this reading, the Son of Man is thus a manifestation of some kind of the ancient of days. And this is how the tradition developed in Greco-Roman period Judaism of a divine figure who went by the title Son of Man and who in some way manifested the presence of God. And I and others have argued that this was thought to have been achieved through that figure's endowment with the divine name, which functioned as a vehicle for divine agency, power, and presence. So as the authorized bearer of the divine name, they manifested the presence and the power and the authority of God. And this is similar to the angel of the Lord in the Hebrew Bible, whose identity seems to overlap with that of God's own identity at the burning bush. And when meeting figures like Hagar and Gideon and Manoah and his wife, then we see in Exodus um, 23, God states that the angel has authority over the forgiveness of sins because my name is in him. So getting back to John of Patmos, Jesus is represented here using that imagery from Daniel as both son of man and the bearer of the divine name and of the Ancient of Days presence. And this figure is shining with divine brilliance that can only be described in terms of snow, white wool, fire, and glowing hot bronze. Then the Son of Man introduces himself as the first and the last, and the living one who was dead and is now alive forever. This is Jesus, but as with the merging of the identity of the Son of Man with the Ancient of Days, Jesus is bumping up against God's own self-identification as the Alpha and Omega, by calling himself the first and the last. It's not exactly the same, but it's hinting at that. We also get a quick interpretation of the ministry of the seven stars and lampstands. This is another feature of apocalyptic literature, the interpretation of symbols. Not all symbols are interpreted though, just a few. And the point is to make some points clear and to leave others obscure, incentivizing the hearer to seek to discover the meaning of the other symbols. Um, and giving a bit of a hint as to how. This brings us to the letters of the seven churches, which in order are in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, moving clockwise around the churches, starting from the church closest to John on Patmos. I'm not going to read every word of these letters, but instead focus on a few points that I think are interesting. Uh, part of the point here is not just to condemn the Roman Empire, but also to crack the whip over Christians and engage in some boundary maintenance. Some Christians are happy to get along with Rome, and this is unacceptable to John of Patmos. There's no middle ground here. There is some praise and or finger wagging, followed by the promise of some kind of symbolic reward to whomever overcomes, conquers, or is victorious. 
and take note of how Jesus is going to conquer and overcome later on in the book of Revelation. To Ephesus, Jesus has John write, I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. We get a brief peek at a controversy that seems to have plagued Ephesus where there were Christians claiming to be apostles but whose apostleship the Ephesians and according to John, even God rejected. Ephesus has their own issues for which they have to repent according to the rest of the letter. Uh, Smyrna has something similar going on. Folks are claiming to be Jewish, but are actually of the synagogue of Satan. It should be noted here that this is likely a reference to Christians who are also claiming to be Jewish, which is likely about claiming some kind of special status among Christians, not just a regular Christian, but the, the extra Christians. The letter to Pergamum makes reference to the martyrdom of Antipas, which for some asinine reason has given rise to the ludicrous notion that Antipas was killed in either Geneva or Berlin, and that the throne of Satan is either the large Hadron Collider at CERN or the Temple of Zeus that was moved from Pergamum to Berlin. This is what I have to deal with every day. Uh, but in verse 14, we get this statement that some at Pergamum hold to the teaching of Balaam, specifically by eating food sacrificed to idols and by practicing fornication, which is pornea in Greek. Balaam seems to be some kind of coded reference to an individual or groups who were teaching these things in Pergamum. Um, the text also says some at Pergamum hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which are teachings Ephesus was praised for having rejected. And Thyatira is similarly chided for tolerating, quote, that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Just like Balaam, Jezebel, likely another coded reference, is getting followers to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Uh, Balaam was also a false prophet, and so we're getting some kind of coded condemnation of perhaps the same individual or group who is presuming to speak on God's behalf. The author then moves on to using sexual violence as a metaphor for God's punishment of unfaithful Christians. I'm throwing her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I am throwing into great distress unless they repent of her doing. I will strike her children dead. Um, the ESV, English Standard Version, uh, renders, I will throw her onto a sick bed, as if the punishment is to be stricken with illness, but that has no significance to the symbol of a sex worker whose clients are committing adultery with her and who has multiple children conceived through her work. God's threat is to sexually assault Jezebel, to kill her illegitimate children, and to throw her clients into some kind of unknown distress. Those at the social margins are treated most despicably in this metaphor with the ones we might call the Johns, merely getting some kind of ambiguous distress. The purpose is no doubt to be shocking, but the fact that this text is willing to shock by presenting God as using the threat of rape and murder as punishment for what the author frames as heresy ought to give us pause. Many contemporary Christians make ill-informed efforts to try to domesticate this text by either reinterpreting it away like the ESV or by coming up with an excuse for why it should be okay for God to figuratively use the threat of rape and murder to compel greater faithfulness. Such apologetic efforts validate the use of threats of sexual and physical violence against women and are despicable. I'm going to skip over the letter to Sardis and briefly address the letter to Philadelphia, which again brings up those who say they are Jewish but are a, quote, synagogue of Satan. Verse 9 says, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. 
The verb here for bow down is proskuneo, which occurs 24 times in the book of Revelation, and in every other occurrence is translated worship. A lot of folks are uncomfortable with understanding the passage to suggest the righteous will be worshipped, but this actually fits imagery we see elsewhere in Greco-Roman period Jewish literature. For instance, the Son of Man character in 1st Edict 48.5 will be worshipped by everyone on earth. In Revelation 3.21, at the end of the letter that Allah the Saiyans, says the one who conquers will sit down with Jesus on his throne, just like Jesus is sat down on God's throne. This similarly extends exclusively divine prerogatives to humans. And this is not the only time this happens. According to a 2nd century BCE play called the Exegoge, written by an author called Ezekiel the Tragedian, Moses had a dream where he stood before a great throne on the top of Mount Sinai and saw a noble man sitting on it who descended and gave Moses a crown and had him sit in his place on his throne. So these letters seem to be using imagery found elsewhere in Greco-Roman period Judaism to hint at some degree of the democratization of the divinity that is possessed by the Jewish son of man, by Moses, and by Jesus. So Revelation is swimming deep in the waters of Second Temple Jewish traditions associated with the intersection of the human and the divine. From here, we're going to move into the cycles of visions, beginning with a vision of John's ambiguous throne theophany or vision of God on their throne, surrounded by 24 other thrones, by 24 elders, and by four living creatures with different kinds of faces and with six wings each. The elders are singing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. John sees the one seated on the throne holding a scroll sealed with seven seals. One of the angels asks who is worthy to break the seals to open it, introduced by John's statement that he heard and then saw. In some places, there is some incongruity between what John hears and what he sees, which some scholars have suggested is intended to correct earlier readings of the scriptures. In other words, he hears what is conventionally understood about the scriptures, but what he sees is what the author is trying to communicate is correct. Alternatively, the incongruency could just be adding layers to one's understanding, cumulatively adding to that. An example is John hearing one of the elders say to him, do not weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now the idea of the lion of the tribe of Judah conquering should conjure up an image of victory in battle, especially for someone versed in the Hebrew Bible's representation of God. But what John sees is a lamb that has been slaughtered and has seven horns and seven eyes representing seven spirits of God. The conquering for the lamb is not in battle, but through sacrifice. It is through the blood of Jesus and through self-sacrifice that Christians are to conquer, read this way. You've heard it said, victory in battle, but I say to you, victory through self-sacrifice. The lamb takes the scroll, and then the elders sing a new song. This new song focuses on Jesus' sacrifice that ransoms saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. Focuses thus shifted from centering God's creative acts to centering Jesus' ransoming of all people through his blood. And this new song parallels the shift of the Sabbath from Saturday in recognition of the creation to Sunday in recognition of Jesus' resurrection. And the Lamb begins to open the seals, and with each seal there is a richly symbolic vision involving horses and riders for the first four seals, then those slaughtered for their faith with the fifth. With the opening of the sixth seal, the sun goes black and the stars fall from the sky, with the angel waiting to shake the heavens and the earth like a dirty rug. 
being stopped until God's slaves can be sealed. John hears the number as 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. But when he looks, he sees an innumerable multitude from all the tribes and peoples and languages of the earth. The numbering is likely symbolic of completeness, and the notion it is limiting the number of folks who will be saved is a pretty strained reading, particularly in light of what John actually sees when he looks. When we see the numbers 7 and 12, those are symbolic numbers, and they are the foundation governing the shape that the story takes. They are not references to real-world data. The opening of the seventh seal leads to 30 minutes of silence before John sees seven angels who are given trumpets. Before they blow the trumpets, another angel fills a bowl with fire and incense and pours it over the earth, causing it to shake with thunder, lightning, and earthquakes. Then the trumpets are blown one by one with each blow, introducing some kind of catastrophe. The blowing of the sixth trumpet has been the object of a lot of attention lately, since it is followed by an angel calling for the release of the four angels bound at the Euphrates River, who will go and kill a third of mankind with the help of an army of 200 million troops, riding lion-headed horses to breathe fire and brimstone. The fluctuating water levels on the Euphrates as a result of climate change, as well as the manipulation of dams further upstream in Syria and Turkey, has led many to believe the drying up of the river is a portent of this prophecy. But that's been going on for many years, and the drying up of the Euphrates doesn't come until several chapters later and is unconnected with the bound angels, which are likely being drawn from the tradition of the binding of the disobedient angels in First Enoch. Before the seventh trumpet is blown, there's another scroll. There's a measuring rod, and there are two witnesses who die and then come back to life. When the seventh trumpet is blown, the earth is turned over to God, whose temple was opened so that the Ark of the Covenant could be seen. This vision and the 11th chapter end with flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy, heavy hail. Then chapter 12 begins with the description of the woman crying out in labor pains and the seven-headed and ten-horned dragon sweeping a third of the stars from the skies that waits for the baby to be born so it can eat it. But God takes the baby as soon as it's born, and a woman escapes to the desert. And Michael and his angels show up and do battle with the dragon, uh, who is called that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. And the imagery of the dragon is reminiscent of early Israelite traditions about Leviathan, which is parallel with other ancient Southwest Asian traditions about a great chaotic sea monster. And we see references to God bringing about creation following the defeat or the taming of this chaos monster in places like Psalms, Isaiah, and Job. And this was likely the earliest creation account in the earliest periods of Israel's existence. And it resonates with other texts like Enuma Elish, where the patron deity of Babylon, Marduk, defeats the deity of chaos and the sea, Tiamat, and then splits her corpse in two to create the heavens above and the earth beneath. And you can see vestigial traces of this tradition in the later creation account of Genesis 1, which has the firmament dividing the depths, which is tehom in Hebrew and is cognate with the Akkadian Tiamat to separate the waters above from the waters beneath so that the dry land can appear. Um, I'm going to skip a little bit just in the interest of time. So Revelation seems to be consolidating a number of different traditions scattered around the Hebrew Bible and likely other literature within the figure of Satan. Satan is not an individual agent in the Hebrew Bible, but a title for a role that anyone could fill. It's within Greco-Roman period Judaism and early Christianity that Satan is transformed into the personal name of a single figure who stands opposed to God. 
as part of this transformation, this figure is identified with other symbols of evil in the Hebrew Bible. It was only around a century before the book of Revelation was composed that Lucifer from Isaiah 14 was identified with Satan. Uh, this passage in Isaiah 14 is just a sarcastic reference to the king of Babylon. The serpent from the Garden of Eden doesn't even seem to be identified with Satan by the time of the book of Revelation. It's actually early Christians in the second century CE uh, who first make that connection. Now, after being thrown down to earth, the dragon tries to attack the woman, but the earth itself comes to her defense, enraging the dragon, who then goes to attack her children, the righteous followers of God. Then John sees two beasts rise out of the sea. The first is given authority by the dragon and is worshipped by the whole earth. The second is the deputy of the first, deceiving the world into worshipping the first by performing signs and miracles. It creates an image of the first beast and gives it breath, allowing it to speak. Those who don't worship the image of the first beast are killed. John then describes the mark, the name, and the number of the beast. There's been a variety of interpretations of the mark, but it seems to be in part mimicking the ex expectation known from Deuteronomy 6 that Jewish people bind the words of the law as a sign on their hand and their forehead. This scripture would lead to the practice of using phylacteries, which is a practice that literally binds a box containing a set of passages from the law of Moses on the forehead and to that hand. The market is also a way to buy and sell, which is suggested, suggestive of coinage, particularly in light of the fact that the mark has the name of the beast or its number. The number is using gematria to encode the name of the beast, and it's really not that difficult to decipher. Uh, you remember that we had one early manuscript of this passage, but the number was different. The number here uh, is 616, not 666. But both of these numbers result in the same name when we add up the numerical values of the Hebrew letters used to spell that name. Both spellings are transliterations from other languages because the name is not a Hebrew name. Transliteration is when you write the word of one language using the alphabet of another language. So, for example, shalom in Hebrew on the top is transliterated shalom using a Latin script. And the name here is Nero Caesar. And this is a coin that bears his image and his name. And in Greek, Nero's name is spelled Neron with an N on the end. Transliterating that into Hebrew gives us Neron Kaiser. And if we add up the numerical values of the Hebrew letters, we get 666. Now, the noon on the end of Nero has a numerical value of 50. And in the Latin transliteration of Nero's name, which also appears on many coins, there is no N. So the transliteration is narrow Kaiser, and the numerical value of those letters is 50 less, or 616. Now, Nero died on June 6, 68 CE, which is most likely more than 20 years before Revelation was written, though there is a small minority of scholars that think Revelation was written around the time of the Jewish War that resulted in the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem in 70 CE. So why would this text be referring to this beast as Nero? Uh, well, after Nero's death, there, was, there were some accounts claiming either that he had escaped death and was in hiding, waiting for an opportunity to return from the east, from the Parthians, to take over the empire, or that he was going to come back from the dead to take over the empire. And this belief was either caused by or was the cause of some impostors pretending to be Nero, returning from either self-imposed exile or for the dead, from the dead. Whatever the origin of this tradition, it supports reading 666 as a reference to the Roman emperor Nero, who famously persecuted Christians and served as a wonderful symbol in John's drama. John then sees the lamb with the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion with a new song to sing that only they know. The tension and the forcefulness of the exhortation to faithfulness is heightened by these notions that John is withholding information that hearers and readers may one day learn if they remain faithful. 
John then sees an angel flying with the everlasting gospel to preach to those on earth. Another angel follows behind, announcing that Babylon has fallen. And Babylon here is a longstanding symbol of any wicked empire. Uh, no doubt refers to the expectations that Rome would be defeated by God. John sees the Son of Man and other angels come out to reap the harvest and to crush the grapes in the wine press. This is followed by seven more angels who are given seven bowls to pour out the wrath of God. Pouring out of each bowl results in sores, blood, fire, darkness, demonic spirits, and natural disaster. The seventh angel also shows John the judgment of the great whore who sits on the dragon and has written on her forehead Babylon the great mother of whores and of earth's abominations. And this angel makes clear to John that the dragon represents Rome, which is making war against Christians. And another angel announces that Babylon, meaning Rome, has fallen. Another voice from heaven calls out for God's people to depart from Babylon and to have no part of her sins and thus her punishment. The author belabors this point, listing off all kinds of different groups that have taken part in her sins and will take part in the consequences. Chapter 19 begins a series of proclamations of hallelujah, praise, and blessings. Then we get the white horse being ridden by the word of God, dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Jesus is victorious, and one of the results is that the birds of the skies will be invited to feast on the flesh of all the inhabitants of Babylon slash Rome, free or enslaved, great or unimportant. In this fantasy about God delivering their people and conquering the oppressor, the system isn't questioned or overturned. Rather, it's just the sides that will be switched. The prosecuted will become the prosecutors. The fantasy isn't to rid the world of these systems or this violence, it's to be on the other side of it. And then comes the binding of Satan for a thousand years, following which the dragon will be given another opportunity to deceive, which will lead to another judgment, this time of all the dead. After this judgment, death and hell themselves will be thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Anyone whose name is not in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire, which seems to represent a brand of annihilationism. In other words, death, hell, and the unrighteous will all just cease to exist. And this idea of annihilationism is one of the three main categories of postmortem divine punishment that we see represented in the New Testament. The other two are temporary torment, followed by annihilationism, and then eternal conscious torment. And the variability throughout the New Testament suggests that early Christians had not yet settled on a systematic concept of divine punishment in the afterlife, but the imagery we would get in Revelation of the Lake of Fire would certainly be deployed in later Christian systematization and representation of hell. We then get a new heaven and the new earth, which have no more suffering, death, or grief. Um, Chapter 22 introduces the water of life and the tree of life, bringing us back to Eden and to the tree of life of which humanity was deprived so long ago. All things are new again, and the story of the Bible is being tied off with a nice, neat bow. John then provides an epilogue and a benediction, which appeals to the well-known convention of pronouncing curses upon any who would change any of the words of the book. Uh, Revelation wasn't the last book of the Bible composed, but its ending sure does make for a fitting bookend to the Bible. And its position at the end of the Bible would take some time to be secured. But once it was secured, the curses pronounced in these verses were reinterpreted as, as, as extending to cover the entire Bible rather than just the book of Revelation. And I'll just give me a moment. I want to leave a, at least a few minutes um, for questions. An author named Dionysius of Alexandria wrote in the mid 200 CE about the book of Revelation. He was one of those who observed that the text was unlikely to have been written by the author of the Gospel of John, but he also noted that many Christians thought the text was a fake. 
These Christians, according to Dionysius, thought a man named Serinthus was the actual author. This man had started a sect of Christianity that indulged in eating and drinking and making merry with festivals and sacrifices, and this seemed to them to fall more in line with the particular worldview of the author of Revelation than it did with any of the apostles. The obscurity of the imagery was another reason for doubting its authenticity. Dionysius wrote, Some before us have set aside and rejected the book altogether, criticizing it chapter by chapter and pronouncing it without sense or argument and maintaining the title as fraudulent, where they say that it is not the work of John, nor is it a revelation, because it is covered thickly and densely by a veil of obscurity, and they affirm, and they affirm that none of the apostles and none of the saints, nor anyone in the church, is its author. Writing decades earlier, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus of Lyon forcefully asserted the beloved disciple John's authorship of the text, and that held an awful lot of sway in early Christianity. This guy, Athanasius of Alexandria, would become the text's savior and would secure the text's place in the biblical canon. Athanasius didn't interpret the beast as Rome, but as Christian heretics. The call was coming from inside the house and Athanasius deployed the text as a rhetorical bludgeon against lukewarm Christians who challenged the authority of the developing Catholic with a little C church. Two prominent, uh, prominent opponents of Athanasius were the Arians, who opposed his champion in championing of Nicene Trinitarianism and even, exceeded, even succeeded in having him exiled multiple times, and the monasteries, who were content to ignore the church and keep to themselves in the Egyptian desert with their own sets of apocalyptic and other literature that served them in their asceticism and mysticism. The book of Revelation helped Athanasius vilify each. Um, in the fifth century, uh, the famous Christian theologian Augustine of Hippo would write about Revelation in his text, The City of God, and Augustine, who was staunchly ascetic, would provide a roadmap for finding value and utility in Revelation by rejecting the plain and literal sentence of the text in favor of a more spiritualized and figurative reading that saw the now powerful church as already experiencing its millennial reign. So the church takes over Rome, that is the millennial reign, and this would allow for the text to remain popular for generations to come. Thank you for your time and uh, attention. I'm sorry I had to skip around a little bit, but I wanted to leave uh, a few minutes for uh, any questions that anyone might have. And I see the Q&A has been um, a few questions in here. Um, I'll go ahead and respond to these, if uh, Chris, if you don't have any uh, objection. No, go ahead. If you're reading them yourself, that's fine. I, okay. I've been following as well, but yes. <laughs> um, how does our church process data that implies the book of Revelation was not written by John the Revelator? Uh, not well. Uh, the church subordinates those data to the um, revelation of the Book of Mormon, that this is John the Revelator, uh, or John the uh, the beloved disciple. There are a handful of, of parts of Restoration Scripture that make that identification, and that takes priority in processing these data. So um, it considers that to uh, take precedence. Uh, does the vision to Nephi led by the angel have elements of apocalyptic literature? Uh, I would say yes, it has some elements of apocalyptic literature. Um, I think it is not thoroughly apocalyptic. It is lacking some of the central elements, but yes, it is borrowing imagery from apocalyptic literature. Um, and uh, there's a broader genre of ascent 
uh, narratives, and it's it's more comfortably fitting in that where the angel represents what what they call a psychopomp, who's kind of a guide through this vision. What book do we consider the last book of the Bible composed, if not Revelation? Uh, I think most critical scholars would say some of the uh, what are called Catholic epistles, like Second, uh, Third John, Second Peter, um, the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. These are probably um, pseudepigraphic texts, so they are were not written by um, the author who is claimed uh, the the claimed author. And those are generally thought to have been composed somewhere in the first half of the second century CE. So like uh, pastoral epistles, probably between 100, 125 CE. Texts like Second Peter, probably between 125 and 150 CE, according to critical scholarship. Can you cover the spectrum of interpretation of the book of Revelation, guessing from those that believe this is a map of what is going to happen at the end of the world to those that see it as purely symbolic slash figurative? Also, would you share your take on the book? Uh, that would be probably a little too lengthy to try to cover the entire spectrum, but you have uh, those who think that there are, are three main kind of ways to interpret eschatology in the Bible. There's uh, what's called a, um, trying to remember what they are now. I don't remember the names, but one of them is basically that uh, this is historical uh, this happened in 70 CE. This are everything already happened. This is kind of the preterist approach. Um, all of this took place when Jerusalem was besieged by Rome and the temple was destroyed. There's another interpretation that sees this as something that's still waiting to happen. This is how the official Latter-day Saint approach to this, that, that we are waiting for these things to take place and that will usher in the eschaton, the end times. Another interpretation is that this is um, figurative and metaphoric, and it can be applied to any period of time. So whatever circumstances we're in, there are lessons to be extracted from this imagery and this message. It is not intended to refer to something that happens once in a specific place and time, but to be used figuratively to inform our experiences throughout time. Um, and my take is that this was apocalyptic literature intended for a late first century CE Christian audience. I'm still struck by the idea that Satan in the Old Testament is a role rather than a person. This fits much better with my own skepticism about Satan. Where can I go read more about the evolution of Satan the devil? Um, two places. Uh, one is um, Archie Wright's book. I forget what it's called. Give me just one second. I happen to be wearing pants now, which is the only reason I did that. Um, most of the time, I wouldn't have done that. Uh, Archie Wright's book, Satan and the Problem of Evil, From the Bible to the Early Church Fathers. That is a wonderful discussion. Uh, the Satan, Ryan Stokes, How God's Executioner Became the Enemy, is another great book. And then I also have an online class on the development of the concept of Satan that is available at didascaloi.com. And I, I think we are at time. Yes, Dan, I would, um, just because it fits a couple of other questions in the chat, um, the idea of apocalyptic, ap apocalyptic literature as a genre. Do you have any um, other examples? Anything? I mean, it, you, you've talked about how the Jewish uh, the Jewish Christian reader of or listener of the day would have understood it that way. But yeah, how, do we have any other examples we know of 
to modern 21st century people could could see in that in that genre? Uh, I think the uh, the second half of the book of Daniel from chapter seven through 12 represents probably one of the original uh, pieces of apocalyptic literature within Judaism. But the majority of the development of that genre within Greco-Roman period Jewish literature was going on within texts that we now consider apocryphal or pseudepigraphical. So things like Enoch, things like Jubilees, uh, other texts like that that are um, not a part of most people's Bibles are where the, most of the development took place. Um, and so I think Daniel and Revelation are probably the clearest examples that we find in our Bibles today. But there, there are even, there's even a whole genre of, of texts within the pseudepigrapha called apocalypses. You have the apocalypse of Abraham, the apocalypse of Moses. You have a number of these apocalypses that were written between like the first century BCE and the third and the fourth century CE that are kind of a mixture of Christian and Jewish imagery. So they're out there, but they're not the kinds of things that people are going to have on their shelves right now. Thank you. Before Thank you. we actually close, I'd love to, yeah. um, to ask this question from Rachel Osler. Do you have any favorite positive inspiring passages <laughs> of Revelation? Um, I think that I, I briefly mentioned how we have what John hears and then what John sees. And I find the contrast between the two to be among the more inspiring features of the book of Revelation, because I find those to be correctives, to be saying, no, it's not about conquering through military might. It's about conquering through the blood of Jesus, conquering through self-sacrifice. Now, there are those who would say that's not the God of the book of Revelation. Uh, and, and there is truth to that. The God of the book of Revelation is bathing their sword in the blood of their victims. And so there's an awful lot of violence going on there as well. And this was one of the things that like, they kept the book of Revelation on the sidelines for so many years until Athanasius kind of uh, forced it into the game. And so there are ways to extract what I think are inspiring principles from the book of Revelation, but I think you also have to hold some other things um, at arm's length. And one of the most harmful things, I think, about the book of Revelation, one of the ways I think we need to be most clear we should not use it is by finding ourselves in the text as the oppressed today, as particularly American Christians, because we are not the oppressed. We are on the side of the oppressor. And if we want to find ourselves in the text and identify ourselves as the oppressed, that means we need to go in search of oppressors. And overwhelmingly, that means the people we're um, exercising systemic power asymmetry over. In other words, that's why we tend to look at the people who are on the side, who are the oppressed and say, they're oppressing us. Um, so there's that saying that if you're used to uh, privilege, equality feels like oppression. And so for, for Christians who want to say, we're the oppressed in the book of Revelation. We need to go fight these battles. They have to hold up the actual oppressed as the oppressors. And so I think that's one of the more dangerous parts of the book of Revelation. So I think there are things that are inspiring in it. And I also think there are things we need to be very careful that we try to stay away from. And thank you very much. Um, we will close with a prayer. Linda, let me call on you. And... Uh, and then close the recording, start again, and chat a little bit. Linda?
our great, loving, eternal God, we thank Thee for the compassion of Jesus. We thank Thee for the example of the low and simple things being made pure and mighty by Thy will and influence. We are grateful for Dan and for his scholarship and for his uh, generosity. We ask that thou will bless him and his family. We pray, Father, for the troubles in this world and ask that thy will somehow will be done. And we pray for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Greetings, my name is Rebecca Deschweinitz and I'm thrilled to serve as a board member at the Dialogue Foundation and as one of the hosts of Dialogue Gospel Study. In each episode, which we record live the second and fourth Sunday of every month, we welcome esteemed speakers from a variety of backgrounds to share their insights and perspectives on the Come Follow Me lessons. Our aim is to spark meaningful conversations about the scriptures, to connect them to our personal experiences and to our understandings and explorations of the gospel. To stay in the loop with our upcoming lessons and this opportunity to engage with Mormon thought, culture, and belief, be sure to visit DialogueJournal.com and sign up for our newsletter. By doing so, you'll receive updates and timely links to join our live stream lessons. Additionally, you can catch up on our past guests and episodes by subscribing to Dialogue Journal on YouTube, Facebook, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.